1 Timothy 6, 20-21. Hear the word of the Lord. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. I'm going to um, share a little bit about myself and a little bit about uh, my family. So, in honor of that, I'm wearing my senior high school uniform all the way down to the tie. This is a blue jacket, gray pants, blue shirt, and the red and the blue tie. I want you to put your thinking hat on, and I want, to, I want you to figure out with me what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about a tetrapoda. Tetrapoda. All right, no Googling, no, no fiddling with electronic devices. Just use your head. This poda is a female. She is fully grown, mature, and she weighs 3,000 pounds. She is 16 feet long, and she stands about 5 foot tall, and she loves the water. Now, she's pregnant, and when this tetrapoda gets pregnant, her gestation period is 243 days. I know, Neil, can you get a little more precise? Maybe 244, maybe 249, but typically 243. And when she senses that the gestation is ending and birthday is here, she plunges into the water and she actually delivers her child under water. And this little baby, Tetrapoda, weighs 110 pounds. That's a baby. And she stands four feet tall. And you thought 21 inches with your kid was good. Four feet tall, right out of the womb. The name of the tetrapoda is a Latin compound. It's two words tied together. Anybody tell me what I'm thinking about? Nobody wants to buy a ladder? All right, let's, let's take the... Let's take the second Latin word, the end of the word. It means river. And in Latin, the word is potomus. Are you still buying ladders? You must be broke by now. And the first word means river. Good. Hippopotamus. Hippopotamus. The river horse. The horse that loves the river. Now, I, I don't mean to offend you, but you are like that tetrapoda. You are in gestation, and you're reaching the final stages of your gestation. Right now, you, you look like a church, you sing like a church, you smell like a church, and you're living like a church, but you're not a church. You are a church plant. You are a sibling, not yet a tree. Now, what do you got to do or be to move from plant, sibling, to tree? Well, first of all, you need a pastor. 
Now you've got that. You've got an excellent pastor. And more than that, you've got an excellent pastor's wife who's committed, not just to Jesus, who actually loves Ryan and who loves you. And together very much, they want to grow up in Christ with you. Then you need a group of people, a congregation, who are committed to Jesus, to one another. But to become a church, to move from sibling to plant, you must be financially sufficient. You're almost there. Not quite, but almost. The third thing you need is a group of leaders. The word in the Bible for these leaders is called presbyteroi. English translation, presbyter. We think of it as elder. You need a group of presbyters who know the Lord, who know His Word, and who have the love to lead you and love you. Now, at some point soon, there's going to be a group of presbyters come in from other churches, and they've already demonstrated His life in them. And they're going to talk with your nominees, and they're go going to look to discern, how do these men be? How is their being? Are they loving Jesus? Are they living for Jesus? What do these men believe about Jesus and about His Word? And when the approval of your nominees comes, then you get to elect, and the question will be, which of these men do you desire at this time to be your presbyters, to lead you and guide you? You're almost there. You're in the last stages of that gestation. It's good at that point to consider what should our goals be? What should our church life look like? And how do we know? Well, we have a church planter par excellence. No, it's not Ryan. It's the Apostle Paul. He spent his life traveling modern-day Turkey and Greece, preaching, teaching, gathering folks together, and planting groups of people. But he also had a group of young men, and he was mentoring them, discipling them, teaching them, training them, so that one day they would plant, and one day they would disciple, mentor others who would plant also. Now, we know what was being taught, we know what was being preached, and we know how, because God has provided us with the record. We have the planter Paul speaking to the church group in Ephesus. We have him speaking to the church group in Philippi. But we even have him speaking to his protégés who were planting. There's a skinny little letter called Philemon. He was a leader in a church, Colossae. Then we get one to a young planter called Titus, another man trained, mentored by Paul. And then we have a longer section by Timothy, two letters. Now, your pastor has been walking you through studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy. And probably that letter was written probably around A.D. 63. 
Paul didn't know it, but probably he had about five more years to live before he would be executed by the Romans. This first letter, Paul is free, he's traveling, he's teaching, he's planting. And so you've been looking at it, and you should be saying to yourself, are we like this? Is this what we're doing? Is this what the Lord wants of us? My job today is to bring that to a conclusion. And Pastor Ryan read for us the last two verses of that first letter to Timothy. In Europe in the 16th century, the church in Europe decided to take a selfie. And they decided to ask themselves, how do we look? How does our teaching, how does our living look in comparison with what the Bible says? And there was this huge conversation and debate going on in Europe. And as folks looked at God's Word, they began to protest. This is not who we are. This is not what we're like. This is not what we're teaching. And so they began to argue, disagree, and a whole bunch of small plants grew up. And their commitment was only to Jesus and only to the Scripture. Now, that movement spilled over to Scotland. And Scotland is the northernmost country in the United Kingdom. And in the 17th century, it became really rough in the church in Scotland because the church in Scotland took a selfie also. And they came to the same conclusion. But things, you know, my middle name is McKinnis, so I'm really half Celt. And we're not always smooth, charming talkers. We have started more than one fight. And in the 17th century, when a Catholic king was ruling Scotland, he sent his army out and said, go find those protesters and put an end to them. And there's a square, or there was a square in Edinburgh, had an iron fence around it, and the heads of those who were protesters were hung on the spearheads of the steel fence as a warning. When a Protestant was king of Scotland, he wasn't quite as vicious, but he still was rough and sent his army out to find those who would not protest. So you find a, a flight in Scotland in the 17th century, and on the western side of Scotland, there's a whole bunch of islands. We call them the Isles. And there was waves of exiles that fled there to escape the, the rule, the cruel, brutal rule of Catholic king or Protestant king. And there were several waves of exiles who decided to get out of Scotland completely. And so they fled to the island next to Scotland, to the west, Ireland, my homeland. And in the 1650s, there was a group of those exiles who came to a little village called Bally Easton. Bally, B-A-L-L-Y, Easton, E-A-S-T-O-N. And these folks were protesters who had made a covenant with one another and with the Lord. 
They covenanted to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. They covenanted to trust in the Bible as the only rule of faith and practice. They covenanted to keep the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And they covenanted to keep the great commission, to go tell, to go speak about Jesus to your neighbor, to your village, to the next village, to the next town, to the next continent. That small group of covenanters established a church. Valley Easton today is not a whole lot different than what it was 350 years ago. They were horse-drawn then, now they're engine-drawn. It was a village with 90 homes. One of the homes houses a small post office in the bottom room of the house. There's a general store. There's what we call a pub. You call it a bar. And then the southern end of the village, on a hill slope, there's this huge building. It's called First Valley Eastern Presbytery. That's the patriarchal home of my family. In Ireland, especially in the north, you don't have church membership by speaking what you believe. You have church membership because of what your granddaddy joined or what his great-granddaddy joined. That's where your church roots are. So that's where my patriarchal family belongs, a huge church in a little village. Now listen to me carefully. Growing up as a boy, I never had a Bible. Growing up as a boy, I never was taught or told about Jesus. Growing up as a boy, I never was taught or told that I was not pleasing to a holy, sinless God. Growing up as a boy, I was never taken by my parents to church. No, not once. If you'd asked my parents, what's your church? Instantly they have said, First Valley Easton. Even though they never, as we say in Ireland, they never darkened the door. In the last hundred years, that church has had four ministers. Four in 100 years. I've known and spent hours with two of them. We never went to church, but the church came to us with their hand out. They came to get their financial contribution. I remember Mr. Galbraith, a sweet, kind, humorous man. He always brought candy. What did I need? Did I need candy? I needed medicine, didn't I? I needed Jesus. But in all of the years I knew him, in all of the hours he and I spent talking, I never was told about Jesus. His successor, Mr. McCollum. I spent hours with him, especially when he discovered that I was thinking about church ministry. He didn't like what I believed. He didn't like that I believed that Jesus was a real person. He didn't like that I believed that the, the Scriptures of the New Testament told me about a real God-man in the flesh. He didn't believe that I believed in the real, literal, physical resurrection. 
And he was trying to persuade me to go to the Assemblies College in Belfast to learn the real true stuff. Now, if you had been there in the 1650s, you would have enjoyed those covenanters. Because what you believe and what you're being taught is virtually identical. But how do you move from teaching and telling about Jesus to teaching and telling about candy? How does that kind of spiritual declension happen? That church is PC, big time. Don't offend anybody. Love everybody. All roads lead to heaven. All religions are teaching the same thing. Don't fight about it. It's not a big deal. Don't take a selfie. That's spiritual declension. My friends, you're at a point where you're going to be birthed and you're going to profess and declare that you believe certain things and then you're going to live a certain way. But if we could fast future a hundred years, what are you going to look like? That's Paul's concern for Timothy. Paul is not PC. These last two verses are short. If you, if you knew the Greek, the words in the Greek that he's using are blunt, critical, negative. He would be a good Celt. He tells it like it is. He doesn't mix or mingle his words. And he gives Timothy four things that Timothy needs to know and do, and you do also. Number one, you must pay close attention to the Word of the Lord. You must pay close attention to the Word of the Lord. Now, in my translation, verse 20 begins with Timothy. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek takes the letter omega and puts it in capital. Then we get Timothy. It's O, Timothy. In grammar, it's the vocative case. We don't use it anymore. We're dumb and dumber. But that means that Paul is saying, Timothy, you listen to me. You pay attention to my words. I'm speaking directly to you, Ryan. Don't go to sleep on me. New City, this is for you. Pay attention. Once you start paying attention to the words of men, or the words of women, you start sliding into spiritual declension. I preached in a church a long time ago, and along the front were all of the elders. They had walking sticks. 
Not because they couldn't walk, but because if I stepped out of line, if I spoke something that was not true to God's Word, rap, 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 on the floor. They were paying attention. Now, you should do that to this man. He's one of my students, so he knows what's right. But nonetheless, you should pay attention to God's Word and listen to Him. Every time he preaches and I'm here, I take notes. I don't see you taking notes, friends. You should be taking notes. I don't care if you take them electronically. You should be taking notes. You should be paying attention. And when these presbyters are here and they start to lead, you need to hold them accountable to God's Word. That never happened in Valley Easton. It hasn't happened in the Presbyterian Church in America. That's why we started. You need to pay close attention to the Word of the Lord. And you need to Fort Knox the Word of the Lord. You need to Fort Knox the Word of the Lord. The facility is ringed with fences. It's guarded by United States police. It's protected by layers of security, physical security, alarm systems, video cameras, microphones, minefields, heavily armed guards. And it's even got Apache helicopters. The 19th Engineer Battalion is there. The 3rd Brigade Combat Team is there. In all, 30,000 soldiers surrounding, guarding, protecting this fort. Why? Why that enormous effort? And below the fortress, under it, there's a vault with granite walls and a 20-ton, not pounds, not ounces, a 20-ton blast-proof door. You need a code to get through it. And when you get through it, guess what? There's another door, another chamber, another door, another chamber. Code's needed every time. Why? Inside that vault, there are 4,582 metric tons, not ounces, not pounds, not one bar of gold, 4,582 metric tons of gold, which last year was valued at $180 billion. Holy cow. Gold. Paul says, Timothy, guard the deposit. Look at me, friends. This is the deposit. This is the gold. God has opened His mouth, opened His mouth, given you His Word, given you His will, given you His way, told you what you should be, how you should live, told you how you can know forgiveness, 
in Jesus, friendship with the Lord. Now he says to Timothy, Timothy, you've got the deposit. You've got the gold. Guard it. The word for guard means to be a sentinel, to be an armed guard, to be a soldier. And in the Greek, Paul is not saying to Timothy, I want to suggest that maybe you should consider how to handle the gold. He's not suggesting, you know, I think that you said he get together and have a big discussion and write down all the thoughts you might have. That's not what he's saying. The Greek here is a verb, and it's in the imperative tense. That means it's a command. Paul's not into suggestions. He's into commands. You guard the deposit. Ryan, Phil, John, presbyters, guard, guard, guard the gold. Thirdly, you must avoid the dilution of the word of the Lord. You must avoid permitting the word of the Lord to be diluted by the thoughts, opinions of men, of women, of professors, of teachers. What is being taught in the colleges of the churches? What's being taught to young men and women in the seminaries of the churches? That man, McConnell, wanted me to go learn that Jesus didn't walk on water. There were stepping stones under the water. The feeding of the 5,000. Isn't that wonderful? Everybody should share what they've got. They all opened up their bags and had a fellowship dinner. It really wasn't a miracle at all. Now, I think, it's, I think it takes more faith to believe that there were stepping stones there than that Jesus walked on water. And, you know, the disciples didn't really see Jesus after his death. They had these psychological visions. And this conversion stuff, that's psychosomatic. The words that Paul uses here, these are very un-PC. These are very uncomplimentary. Irreverent babble. In the Greek, it means empty voices. Contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The word in the Greek is gnosis. That's a buzzword for they think they're superior. They think they know more than God. They wrote a book called the Book of Jubilee. It was an expositional commentary on Genesis. They took that Book of Genesis and they gave their meaning of it, adding in lots of fictional anecdotes. Paul says, empty voices. 
babbling. Friends, you need to avoid diluting the word of the Lord. I watch TV for sports. And I watch a bit of Fox News every now and again. Last night I went to bed before the end of the game. That takes a lot of discipline. Because I knew I had to come to you today. And when I went to bed, I, I thought, this is going to be close, but I better go to bed. Carolina was ahead by maybe five or six points, but Oregon was really pushing. So on the way here today, and I, I didn't check anything since then. I, I said to Nancy, my wife, I said, what happened to Carolina? And she said, oh, I think they lost. I'd rather have Duke there, but we'll take North Carolina. I said, you're kidding me. They choked. And she got her little electronic device. They're wonderful. Just, they'll tell you everything that's happening anywhere. It's wonderful. Oh, Carolina won. <gasps> ACC. Close, but they won. But every now and again, I falter sinfully. And I'll hit the, the channel of the religious stations. Don't do that. I even was really sinful one week, and I started writing down what they were saying. It's incredible how they contradict each other. It's almost wonderful. One says one thing, and the next one will say the complete opposite. And I'm thinking, how did you do that to God's Word? How did you get there? How did you slide so far? Because they thought they were superior. My friends, you need to be careful. Paul says to Timothy, avoid, avoid. The word means to swerve away from. Because if you don't, at the end Paul says, they swerve away from the faith. They wander, they get lost, they meander. Be careful what you watch. Be careful what you read. Hold them accountable, accountable to God's Word. And finally, Paul says to Timothy, you need to be revived by grace. Actually, in the Greek, we get the word the grace. It's the grace. In seminary, I befriended a, a black brother from inner city Philadelphia. One night he said to me, Brother Neil, I want you to come and preach a revival to my church. I said, Brother James, I'm a Presbyterian. We don't do revivals. He says, you need to come revival. Well, I went. And I took some musicians with me who played rhythm and blues, and boy, those folks just loved that. And I took somebody who had a dirty, rotten, sinful past like I have, and boy, did they love to hear his story of coming to Jesus. I took a 20-minute sermon. 
Now, do you know what happens in that wonderful culture to a 20-minute sermon? It becomes 45. They talk back to you. The pastor is in the front row. Oh, Lord, no! Because I was preaching about Jacob. My 20-minute mini went to 45. You know what happened to me? I was revived. Even though Presbyterians don't get revivals, I got revived. Paul says to Timothy, the grace. What is the grace? The grace is the story of the love and affection of God for sinful men and women like Neil Gilmore. It stretches from Genesis to Revelation. In the day that you sin, you'll die. But God, in His love and mercy and kindness, did not cause Adam and Eve to die, but He caused that lamb to die. He slew that lamb. The blood was spilt, the blood of the lamb. And then He cut the carcass of the lamb, and He took the skin, and He covered them with a new suit of clothes to cover their sinful presence with the lamb. All the way to Revelation, it's the story of the grace, God's love and affection for sinful men and women. Until Revelation does what Pastor Ryan already prayed for this morning, Jesus says, I'm knocking. I'm knocking. These words that Paul writes to Timothy are not to the world. They're actually to the church, to people in the church who are going astray, to people in the church who think they're smart cookies. They know more than God's Word. Jesus said, I'm knocking on the door. Is there anyone here who wants their friendship with me? Anyone here who wants to fellowship and be close with me and get to know me and walk with me? When you rest in that grace story, even a dirty, rotten sinner like Jacob comes to Christ. Even a wonderful man like Joshua, his name means he who saves, shows us Christ. It's a beautiful story of his grace. We need to rest in it. We need to rejoice in it. We need to be un-Presbyterian and be revived in our zeal. If you're not revived by that grace, you will be like First Presbyterian Bali Easton. You will slide into spiritual declension. There is disagreement over the size of the site. Some think it's as big as three acres. I've been there. It's much smaller, much smaller. March of 1836, there were 200 defenders in that fort. Jim Bowie was there. Davy Crockett was there. William Travis was there. 200 defenders in a small fort. At the end of February, they looked out and they saw a massive 
Mexican army numbering thousands, with Santa Ana as the general. There was two weeks when there was no action. They just laid siege to the fort. And then on March 6, 1836, Santa Ana gave the order, and that Mexican army overran that fort in 90 minutes. There were a handful of prisoners, and David Crockett was one of them. His neck was slit within the hour. When the news of the Alamo swept through Texas, the agony, the shame, the pain of that awful defeat, thousands of Texans rallied and signed up and got behind General Sam Houston, the city. He led that army to the Battle of San Jacinto. It was a glorious victory for the Texans. And as they ran into battle, you know what they shouted? The title of my sermon, Remember the Alamo. Remember our loved ones and dear ones. Remember those who died in our stead, in our place. Remember the Alamo. Pastor Ryan, New City, remember Golgotha. Remember the cross. Remember the gold. And if necessary, lay down your life for it. Only then, and if then, will New City avoid spiritual declension. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we prefer PC. It's easier to handle, easier to deal with. But yet, Father, you have chosen to speak clearly without ambiguity. And so, Father, I pray for myself that you would grant me your Spirit, you would grant me to, to rest in your grace and be revived and to avoid sliding into spiritual declension. Father, for these dear people, for this congregation and gestation about to birth, would you fill them with your Spirit? Would you lead them by your Word? Would they guard the gold? Would they be a joy to Jesus? I pray these things, Father, in His name and for His sake. And God's people said, Amen.